0: Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching. So, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the Worship tab. There, you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. All right. So, with that, I want to dive into Ruth chapter four, chapter three, rather. I'm getting ahead of myself. And uh, if you will pull out your Crosswalk notes. Today's title is called Ruth's Tender Plea. And I'm going to be talking about really the why. Why can Ruth make her tender plea? And in fact, we're going to study several people in this portion of Ruth that make tender pleas. Not only does Ruth make a tender plea, but Ruth's mother in law, Naomi, makes a tender plea, as does Boaz make a tender plea. And all of them are operating off of a similar assumption when they make their tender pleas and it's an assumption that when we pray and make our pleas to God or of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that we should all have i i consider this to be one of the great secrets to having a, an awesome prayer life that I'm going to share with you this morning. So, if you're hoping for your prayer life to go to the next level, this is the message for you. But it applies also to more than just our prayer life. And to illustrate this, I want to I want to tell you a little bit uh, about a gentleman named Cam Newton. Cam Newton is the quarterback of the Carolina Panthers. And just a few months ago, Cam found himself in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 50, something that he had worked for and has a goal for his entire life. But what's interesting about Cam is that Cam was on a journey. And that journey had its ups, but it also had its downs. A little more than a year previous to Cam's appearance in February's Super Bowl, on his way to play a game just two blocks from the facility, Cam had gotten into a horrendous accident in his pickup truck. It crushed the cab of, of his truck, but by the grace of God, Cam Newton walked away from that accident with a few fractured vertebrae in his lower back, which he did have to do some extensive healing from, and a short 20-hour stay in the hospital, but he was alive, Cam Newton, to this day, wears the hospital bracelet that he wore in the hospital when he got taken to it. And in fact, he has engraved words on that hospital bracelet that say this, never forget your journey. And the reason that he wrote those words has to do with his own personal faith in God, Cam believes that everything that happens in his life is something that happens for a purpose, it happens for a reason, and that he shouldn't forget the ups because those are opportunities for gratitude, but he also shouldn't forget the downs because those are an opportunity for reflection and learning. And so he wears that hospital bracelet, and he says, I would rather wear this hospital bracelet any day More so than a Super Bowl ring. Because it reminds me that I'm on a journey and God is with me on that journey. Isn't that amazing? Now I know he passionately, passionately wants to wear a Super Bowl ring. But he loves that bracelet because it reminds him constantly of what God has done for him. As he tells the story, he remembers going back to the truck that was now in a junkyard so that he could see how crushed it was and thinking to himself, I should not have emerged from that pickup truck alive. But by the grace of God, I am still here. God is surely with me on this journey. I tell that story because... I think those are similar thoughts to the thoughts that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz must have had. You see, also in the book of Ruth, we're on a journey with these three main people that we've been hearing about. We're on the journey because they're on the journey. And do you remember where the journey started several weeks ago? It started with a, a huge low. Naomi had been forced to take her husband and her sons and move to Moab because of a huge drought. They couldn't find food to eat in Israel, and so they had moved next door to a foreign country to try to escape the drought. But while there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and then her two sons, Malin and Kilian, had passed away leaving her a widow, and not just a widow, but a widow with no visible means of support because no longer did she have a husband, but she also lost her sons. She didn't know what to do. And so in desperation, she decided to return back to Israel. And if you recall, she had this discussion with her two daughters-in-law about whether they should accompany her. Ultimately, one of the two does accompany her, and her name is Ruth. So Ruth and Naomi return to Israel. They settle into Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, and then things start to happen. It's, it, it, Naomi and Ruth begin in this pit, and it's amazing to see. Now, some of you right now are in a similar pit in your life. And you can relate to this. You're thinking to yourself, I don't know where life is going. I just know that I've fallen a good deal from where I thought I would be at this point in my life. Well, after Naomi and Ruth's fall, they return to Israel. And the first thing that they have to do is put their life back together in some form or fashion. They have to come up with some means to to support themselves. And Pastor Dan shared with us last week that Naomi's plan was to send Ruth out into a relative's field to glean. He called it the equivalent of collecting aluminum cans to to support them. Just some way to collect a, a few pennies so that they could buy the necessities. And Pastor Dan shared with us beautifully how... As, as they began to just stitch their life back together, God was clearly intervening and sent Ruth into the field of a near relative. And Ruth caught his eye and he began to take care of her. And all of a sudden, more than just collecting the aluminum cans, she began to get more and more blessings because of Boaz, this relative, and his generosity. So that kind of picks you up and takes you from the beginning of the journey to to where we are today. And what I want to tell you is you cannot understand this book of Ruth without understanding a certain Hebrew word and, and Old Testament concept that talks about the kind of God you and I have, the kind of God that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz had. So I'm going to start there, and I want you to look in your crosswalk notes. The Hebrew word is pronounced like this, chesed, chesed. Let's all try that. I mean, spit it out, chesed. Isn't that beautiful? That's a lovely word, chesed, all right? Now, it sounds kind of harsh, but in reality, it is one of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament because it describes God's attitude toward you and me, toward Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So what is Chesed? Chesed is loyal, loving, kindness that is so overflowingly generous that it surprises and at times even shocks. Now this is not necessarily the the default mindset or worldview that you and I have toward God, is it? And you know why? We we might not just naturally or normally think that God is overflowingly, generously, loyally kind to us. And here's the reason why. We're all sinful. And so... Even though I know people sometimes say, I don't want to go to church and hear about guilt and I don't want to hear about sin and I don't want to hear about shame. Well, there's a reason that we bring those concepts up here because we know that no matter whether or not you like or don't like hearing about them, somewhere deep down inside your conscience and your heart, you know you know deep down inside of yourself that you have fallen short and continue to fall short, whether it be in your mind or your heart, your actions or your words, of the perfection, the perfect godly life that God wants from you and more importantly for you. We've all fallen short. And because of that, that feeling of falling short is what produces our guilt and our shame. And it's, it's there for all of us because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us. There's no one righteous. There's no one perfect. And so because of our guilt, what's our suspicion sometimes of God's attitude toward us? When you're looking at God through the lens of your shame and your guilt, the suspicion is, God's unhappy with me. And when something bad happens in particular, that suspicion raises its ugly head. And, and, and we can tell ourselves, I don't want to talk about guilt. I hate shame. I don't like the word sin. But when bad things start to happen to us, one of the thoughts that will raise its head is, maybe I'm being punished. And so we have to address it head on. Because if we don't work our way through sin, guilt, and shame, we can never return back to God's true and overwhelming attitude toward us. Now, I'm not saying that a holy God never gets angry about sin. Of course he does. The Bible tells us that he does. I'm not telling you that God doesn't punish and discipline his children because of sin. The Bible once again tells us that he does. But the Bible is very clear to say Just like with a loving parent, this is why God is called, uh, one, one person of the Trinity is called our father. And if you have a loving, kind father, he may at times get angry and frustrated because you've fallen short of his expectations. But that's not his default attitude. His default attitude toward you is love, loyalty, generosity. And this is the same of our heavenly father. And so understanding the book of Ruth is all about understanding God's attitude of chesed, his loyal, generous, loving kindness toward you. That is his default attitude. And as we come into chapter three, we're going to see some crazy stuff. Things that I, as I read through this, I'm like, I don't think I would have attempted that. I certainly wouldn't have planned that. I don't know if I would have asked that. And I'm not sure I would have done that. And so when we're in those situations where we're trying to be resilient, bounce back from a, a tough time, and we're making plans how that might happen, we're, we're, we're making asks of others for help, we're, we're doing things that we think might be right. If our default attitude is God is angry with me, God wants to punish me, that creates a whole different response and a whole different willingness in our hearts to plan, to ask, to do, than it does if we have faith in our God that says, God's default attitude toward me is cassid, it's it's loyal, generous, loving, kindness. He wants my plans to succeed. He wants my asks to be granted. He wants my actions to be blessed. Because my God is filled with loyal, generous, loving kindness toward me. Now, for some of us, that's going to be kind of a a shift because maybe how we were raised or how we've been taught about God before has all been slanted toward the justice, the law the holiness side of things. And if that's the case, to shift our life into another sphere where we believe that God's key, chief, main attitude toward us is loyal, generous, loving kindness is going to need the Holy Spirit's help. And that's what we want to talk about today. So let's look at the journey of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz here. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Would you circle the word home? Because that's an interesting word. That's actually a little twist on the meaning of the actual word there. The word in Hebrew means a place of rest and refuge. A place of rest and refuge. Now, if we think of home... A man sometimes thinks of home as his castle, it's a place where he can come back to, collect himself, it's peaceful, the world, push the world away for a little bit. That's kind of the idea and the reason why they translated, the NIV translators translated it home here. But I kind of like the idea of rest. You see, what's happening now is, as I mentioned a little bit ago, Naomi and Ruth are making life happen with God's blessing. The basics are now being met. We heard about that last week in chapter 2. So now Naomi begins to think, let's advance the plan a little bit. Let's, let's take our life, if we can, to the next level, which can only happen if the basics are being met. And so she thinks to herself, Ruth is still young. We, we need to find a place where she is going to be well provided for. And it's interesting because Naomi's plan is, is going to do something that will benefit Ruth, but it's also ultimately going to circle back and benefit Naomi as well. Now, let's take a look at her plan. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, Ruth is a relative of ours. This is Naomi talking now. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Okay, when I read that, I don't know how you feel about that. You know what my reaction is? What? Like, first of all, it's sneaky. Like, don't tell anybody what you're going to do for crying out loud. Number Number two, it has some risque overtones there. And number three, and here's the big one, is... There are so many way, ways this plan can fail. Think about it, right? She's, this is a totally half-baked plan. <laughs> Number one, what if Boaz decides to go home for the night, and she's wandering around on the threshing floor not knowing who she's bumping into, Number two, what if Boaz stays, but a whole bunch of other guys do as well, what she's supposed to do, pull out a flashlight and flash in everybody's face to see who's really lying there under that blanket? Well, those are the light ones. Number three, what if Boaz, who appears to be a man of integrity, wakes up, sees Ruth lying there, gets up indignantly and says, what kind of man do you think I am? What are you doing here? You are being, and I won't say the word for the sake of children in the room. I'll say it this way, a loose woman, Ruth. Or, what if Boaz, who appears to be a man of great integrity has a struggle with certain kinds of sins. And he sees a beautiful young woman lying at his feet and decides that that's an invitation to do whatever he wants. Do you see how many ways this plan is bad? It's it's a hugely bad plan. But it's a plan. And As so often in life, what I've discovered is it's not about my plans. It's not about my brilliant ideas. It's about what God is going to do with my feeble plans and my stupid ideas. And and that's what's happening here. Don't look at Naomi and go, Naomi, wow, brilliant, girl, this is awesome. Rather go back to Chesed, God's loyal, generous, loving kindness, a God who can take our worst plans, our plans that are definitely slated for failure, and work with those plans and make something happen. Clearly, who is the hero here? Not Naomi. Not Ruth, not even Boaz, the hero that we're going to see again and again and again in chapter 3 is God. And this quality that he loves us with a loyal, generous kindness. He loves you with a loyal, generous kindness. What plans are you making right now? What plans are you convinced that you've kind of hatched and, and now maybe you haven't you know, you haven't leapt in, you haven't leaned into that plan because you're like, oh, this plan is dumb. Or maybe you're, you're halfway down trying to implement this plan and, and you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> oh, what did I do? Can I tell you that a few weeks ago when Phil and I were in Mozambique, we, we didn't, we had a half-baked plan. I'll, I'll admit it. We knew four people Four people in Mozambique, in the entire country, we knew four people. And, and we went over there and said, let's go talk to those four people and see what happens. Unfortunately, one of those four people doesn't live in Maputo, where we were going. And when we got there, two out of three of those people were out of the country, So, Phil and I spent a considerable amount of time in those first few days in Maputo kind of wandering around aimlessly going, what do we do now? Just being honest. But can I tell you that at the end of 10 days, we went there with four sort of iffy contacts in the whole country, and we returned With more than a dozen very solid contacts that God created out of our very iffy plan. And we are ready to move forward now. Not because our plan was anything great. Actually, I think our plan was slated for failure just like Naomi's was. But God took it and he ran with it. And God will do the same for you. Here's what I want you to write down. Naomi's tender plea to Ruth is we need to find you a home. We need to find you a home. And how she goes about trying to fulfill that is a little nutty, as I told you. So let's go on. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now that is also amazing. Have you ever been the victim of someone else's half-baked plan? (laughs) And you're like, go do this. And I'm like, "Mm, no, I don't want to go do that. But But Ruth also is convinced of God's loyal, generous, loving kindness. And so she obeys her mother-in-law. Okay. Let's try it. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits... He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Who knew? He's actually doing what Naomi thought he was going to do. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. I wonder what that was. (laughs) He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant, Ruth,' she said. "'Spread the corner.'" I want you to circle "'corner.'" And then write the word wing. Literally, in the Hebrew, this means spread the wing of your garment. So they wore these long cloaks, and it's what he was using as a blanket, I'm sure. And she says, could you just spread the corner of your blanket over me? Now, this is not just asking Boaz to keep her warm for that night. This is actually code language for saying, take me under your wing, Boaz. Okay? It's a big ask. She's basically proposing to him. Spread the corner, the wing of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, I would love to explain to you this concept, guardian redeemer, but I have a solemn agreement with Pastor Dan to leave that for next week, because that's the whole title of next week's message. Suffice it to say... Just this little bit, a guardian redeemer is a relative who is supposed to intervene to help when needed. That's all I'm going to say, because Pastor Dan's going to develop this idea big time next week, okay? She has a right to ask him for this, is what it's telling you. "'The Lord bless you, my daughter,' he replied. "'This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. "'You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor.'" And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So this got me to thinking, Ruth not only is willing to follow through and do Naomi's half-baked plan to carry it out, but part of Naomi's big plan is a big request, a tender plea, a huge ask. This man, Boaz, she barely knows him. And yes, she has a right to ask him because he's in this position of guardian redeemer. But who's to say he is going to do anything about it? We we learn that he's a little bit older gentleman, so we assume from that that he's been pretty discerning and pretty careful about choosing who he's going to marry and now all of a sudden this girl ruth who is not even a fellow israelite comes and by surprise lies down at his feet and says in essence marry me take me under your wing and what's he supposed to do say oh yeah that's a great idea Have you ever made a big ask? I'm trying to say that very carefully. (laughs) Have you ever made a request of someone that was more than you should really be able to expect of them? And how did that feel? Did you go into that conversation or that meeting thinking to yourself, oh yeah, baby, this is a slam dunk or or were you scared? Were you a little bit afraid? Were you searching for words? Were you umming and awing as you approached making that request because you knew that it was bigger than what you deserved? We've been there haven't we? This church started on a humongous request. Most of us don't, don't remember that before the real estate bubble, there was another bubble about four or five years earlier than that. No, maybe more like seven or eight years earlier than that. Anyone remember what the name of that bubble was called? The dot, the tech bubble, the dot-com bubble. And that bubble burst around 2000, and we went into a recession just as we did recently with the real estate bubble, but it wasn't quite as bad as the real estate bubble, so we've forgotten it. Well, Crosswalk started in 2004. The planning for Crosswalk started in 2002, and the funding for it started in 2003. So planning 2002, funding 2003, startup 2004 right in the middle of that recession. Typically, in our church body, wider church body circles, uh, we can request money from the the big body, and and they will fund a mission start. We were told flat out, forget about it. We have no money. And so we scratched our heads for a good little while and said, how we, we... Levine and South Phoenix need this church. They need Jesus. They need the gospel. This is transformative for a community and a city and for people in that. We can't wait. We were filled with this sense of urgency. We didn't know what to do. And so we put together a half-baked plan. We invited a bunch of people that that we knew, most of whom didn't have a whole lot much more money than, than we did, and had dinner with them up at the T-Bone Steakhouse. Yeah, good restaurant. We fed them a nice juicy steak. That was a good part of the plan. And then we made a tender plea. We made a big ask. And we had prayed, God, if you will give us $25,000 to start this church, we'll call somebody who's nutty enough to be the senior pastor and the starting pastor of this, doing it part-time. And he'll have to work at Circle K or, you know, whatever, and provide some of his own support, and, and, and then we'll provide some of his support. But we need to get this thing going. So we made a big ask of the people. I guess there were about 25, 30 people in that room at T-Bone. Do you know how much God gave us? If you know any of the history of Crosswalk, you might know the number. We prayed for 25,000, God gave us 50,000. And one of the donors said, "I'm going to give my gift on one condition that the pastor start by not working part-time. He starts by working full-time and let's see if we can get this off the ground before the 50,000 runs out." Do you know what happened? We got the church going. And the first week over at Arizona Lutheran Academy, we had 147 attendees. And by that time, I was the pastor. And I, with my personal charisma and preaching, rapidly grew the church down to about 70 people. But over time, then God began to bless it. And it began to grow, and the gospel did what the gospel does. And why did that happen? Because it had nothing to do with my gifts. It has nothing to do with my gifts. It has nothing to do with Dan's gifts or Phil's gifts or Jonathan's gifts or our just departed Christy, our children's minister's gifts. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with two things. Number one, God's loyal overflowingly generous kindness toward us and toward this community to keep the gospel being preached. And number two, not the gifts of a few, but the sacrifices of many, meaning you. God has worked through you, through your talents, your gifts, your sacrifices to make this church happen. And that's why it still happens. Not because of a great plan. Not because of an ask that was guaranteed to be fulfilled because God is God and he is loyally, overflowingly generous toward us. Write this down. Ruth's tender plea, Boaz, take me under your wing. Flip the page. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and the morning. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, "No one must know that a woman could came to the threshing floor." He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when he did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her, and then he went back to town. Right in the fill-in, Boaz tender plea toward Ruth. Ruth, wait, and let me do this. Boaz is going to take action, and if you read this carefully, you can see that Boaz is saying to Ruth I have no idea if my actions are going to work cuz there's someone in between me fulfilling your request there's another kinsman redeemer and he may want to fulfill the request this is this is Ruth in a nutshell make a little progress boom not sure if it's going to work make a little more progress boom go backward That's Ruth's journey, that's Naomi's journey, that's Boaz's journey, and that's our journey, right? Make a little progress, boom, something happens. Make a little bit more progress, boom, something happens. And all the time, I'm taking actions, I'm guessing you are too, where there is absolutely no guarantee that our actions are going to work the way that we intend them to work. Yeah, we have a plan. Yes, we know what we need to ask of others to help us, and then we start stepping out and working that plan, but we, we really, if we're honest, have no clue whether our actions are going to pay off. That's the position Boaz is in. And yet, because he does not believe that God is out to get him, that God is out to judge him, that God is out to trip him up and spoil his plans and punish him, but rather believes that God has a loyal, loving, generous, kindly attitude toward him. He acts anyway. Can I tell you what I've learned and what Boaz is teaching you and me today? Sometimes it's not about our plans or our big asks, or even our actions, sometimes it's just about showing up and watching what God will do. Phil and I had a half-baked plan. We showed up. God did amazing things in Maputo. Twelve years ago, we had a half-baked plan. We had to make a big ask We didn't know whether our actions were going to pay off. I certainly did not expect that 12 years later, I would be facing all of you preaching this message and going, oh my goodness, look what God has done. Not just one service, but two. Amazing what God has done. And God has done it. And now I've learned that if I just show up, and I want you to learn, just show up, Make yourself available to God and trust that he has chesed for you, loyal, loving, kindness, and that he wants to, to bless your plans, bless your requests, and bless your actions. Boaz's tender plea based on that belief is, Ruth, wait, let me do this. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not, see that word? Circle it. Will not rest until the matter is settled today. This story begins with, we must find you rest. And it ends up with Naomi saying, Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled. Do you see that that's your God too? That you can rest. You can find a place of refuge and peace because you know that God's son, Jesus Christ, will not rest until the matter of your sins is settled at the cross. Until the matter of the power to to lead a a life of positive change is settled by the resurrection. Uh, Until your destiny is settled by promising you, I will return and I will take you to be with me forever. This is the Jesus who says to you and to me, he says... Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, say it louder, I will give you rest. rest. That's who you trust. That's who I trust. The Jesus who has promised that when we come to him, because of his overflowingly generous loyal, kindness, and love toward us, we will find rest in him, and we will. Look at what it says in Psalm 27, because it's promised there too. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. This leads to the final plea, our tender plea. God, take care of me. Help me with my plans. Help me with my requests, my big asks, and help me with my actions. Take care of me. I am sure of your overflowing, generous kindness to me in Christ. The way we do that is we pray. And I'm going to close this message by doing, fulfilling a promise I made in my Friday email. I said, I'm going to share with you two secrets to a better prayer life. Number one is this, belief. Belief. Believe that your God is filled with chesed toward you. Overflowing, generous, loving kindness. And the second is be practical. Set up a regular time to pray. I do it in the morning, every morning. Make a list. I know that might seem kind of unspiritual. Make a list, really, about what you're going to talk to God about. But I have found it hugely helpful. And when you pray, however you've made it practical, never, ever, ever forget God's key, God's default attitude toward you is it. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. Lord, we know that there are times when we sin against you. In fact, every day we do this, Lord, we fall short, as you have said, of your glory and, and we know this angers you as a holy God. There's no doubt about that. And yet that's not your default attitude toward us. You are a loving heavenly father. You care about us with a deep love, an overflowingly generous love. Help us, Lord, to get in that space in our hearts and in our minds to realize as we live our lives, Lord, it, it's not our plans it's not our requests. It's not our actions. It's all you. And it's all your generous, loving kindness that makes our life and our journey move forward. Help us remember that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. So my last word today is just this, show up. But show up believing that you are in the hands of an overflowingly generous and loyal God, loyal to you, who loves nothing more than to show you his loving kindness. Your plans may stink. You may not know how to ask for help from that person you need to ask for help from. You may not be even sure what your next action should be. In faith, not fear, in faith, show up trusting God's, let's all say it together one more time, chesed. You love that word, don't you? Cuz that's how God feels about you. All right, I'm going to be up here after the message if you want to pray with me, if you want to ask a question, if you want to just pronounce the word Kessed one more time, come on up. I'll be here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor, his Kessed, and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. We'll see you back here next week.